The Haunted and the Haunters, or The House and the Brain, Extended Version, Part 2, by Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rafe Ball. The Haunted and the Haunters, or The House and the Brain, by Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton. Nothing more chanced for the rest of the night, nor, indeed, had I long to wait before the dawn broke. Not till it was broad daylight did I quit the haunted house. Before I did so, I revisited the little blind room in which my servant and myself had been for a time imprisoned, I had a strong impression, for which I could not account, that from that room had originated the mechanism of the phenomena, if I may use the term, which had been experienced in my chamber. And though I entered it now in the clear day, with the sun peering through the filmy window, I still felt, as I stood on its floor, the creep of the horror which I had first there experienced the night before, and which had been so aggravated by what had passed in my own chamber. I could not, indeed, bear to stay more than half a minute within those walls. I descended the stairs, and again I heard the footfall before me, and when I opened the street door I thought I could distinguish a very low laugh. I gained my own home, expecting to find my runaway servant there, but he had not presented himself nor did I hear more of him for three days, when I received a letter from him, dated from Liverpool, to this effect. Honoured sir, I humbly entreat your pardon, though I can scarcely hope that you will think I deserve it, unless, which heaven forbid, you saw what I did. I feel that it will be years before I can recover myself, and as to being fit for service, it is out of the question. I am therefore going to my brother-in-law at Melbourne. The ship sails tomorrow. Perhaps the long voyage may set me up. I do nothing now but start and tremble and fancy it is behind me. I humbly beg you, honoured sir, to order my clothes and whatever wages are due me to be sent to my mother's at Woolworth. John knows her address. The letter ended with additional apologies, somewhat incoherent and explanatory details as to effects that had been under the writer's charge. This flight may perhaps warrant a suspicion that the man wished to go to Australia, and had been somehow or other fraudulently mixed up with the events of the night. I say nothing in refutation of that conjecture. Rather, I suggest it as one that would seem to many persons the most probable solution of improbable occurrences. My own theory remains unshaken. I returned in the evening to the house, to bring away in a hack cab the things I had left there, with my poor dog's body. In this task I was not disturbed, nor did any incident worth note befall me, except that still, on ascending and descending the stairs, I heard the same footfall in advance. On leaving the house I went to Mr. Jay's. He was at home. I returned him the keys, told him that my curiosity was sufficiently gratified, and was about to relate quickly what had passed, when he stopped me, and said, though with much politeness, that he had no longer any interest in a mystery which none had ever solved. I determined at least to tell him of the two letters I had read, as well as of the extraordinary manner in which they had disappeared and I then inquired if he thought they had been addressed to the woman who had died in the house, and if there were anything in her early history which could possibly confirm the dark suspicions to which the letters gave rise. Mr. J. seemed startled, and, after musing a few moments, answered, I know but little of the woman's earlier history, except, as I before told you, that her family were known to mine but you revive some vague reminiscences to her prejudice. I will make inquiries, and inform you of their result. Still, even if we could admit the popular superstition that a person who had been either the perpetrator or the victim of dark crimes in life could revisit, 
as a restless spirit the scene in which those crimes had been committed, I should observe that the house was infested by strange sights and sounds before the old woman died. You smile. What would you say? I would say this, that I am convinced, if we could get to the bottom of these mysteries, we should find a living human agency. What? You believe it is all an imposture? For what object? Not an imposture in the ordinary sense of the word. If suddenly I were to sink into a deep sleep, from which you could not wake me, but in that sleep could answer questions with an accuracy which I could not pretend to when awake, tell you what money you had in your pocket, nay, describe your very thoughts, it is not necessarily an imposture, any more than it is necessarily supernatural. I should be, unconsciously to myself, under a mesmeric influence, conveyed to me from a distance by a human being who had acquired power over me by previous rapport. Granting mesmerism, so far carried, to be a fact, you are right. And you would infer from this that a mesmerizer might produce the extraordinary effects you and others have witnessed over inanimate objects, fill the air with sights and sounds, or impress our senses with the belief in them, we never having been on rapport with the person acting on us? No. What is commonly called mesmerism could not do this. But there may be a power akin to mesmerism and superior to it, the power that in the old days was called magic. That such a power may extend to all inanimate objects of matter, I do not say. But if so, it would not be against nature, only a rare power in nature, which might be given to constitutions with certain peculiarities, and cultivated by practice to an extraordinary degree. That such a power might extend over the dead, that is, over certain thoughts and memories that the dead may still retain, and compel not that which ought properly to be called the soul, and which is far beyond human reach, but rather a phantom of what has been most earth-stained on earth, to make itself apparent to our senses, is a very ancient, though obsolete, theory, upon which I will hazard no opinion. But I do not conceive the power would be supernatural. Let me illustrate what I mean from an experiment which Paracelsus describes as not difficult and which the author of The Curiosities of Literature cites as credible. A flower perishes. You burn it. Whatever were the elements of that flower while it lived are gone, dispersed, you know not whither. You can never discover nor recollect them. But you can, by chemistry, out of the burnt dust of that flower, raise a spectrum of the flower, just as it seemed in life. It may be the same with the human being. The soul has so much escaped you as the essence or elements of the flower. Still, you may make a spectrum of it. And this phantom, though in the popular superstition it is held to be the soul of the departed, must not be confounded with the true soul. It is but the eidolon of the dead form. Hence, like the best-attested stories of ghosts or spirits, the thing that most strikes us is the absence of what we hold to be soul, that is, of superior, emancipated intelligence. They come for little or no object. They seldom speak, if they do come. They utter no ideas above that of an ordinary person on earth. These American spirit seers have published volumes of communication in prose and verse, which they assert to be given in the names of the most illustrious dead, Shakespeare, Bacon, heaven knows whom. Those communications, taking the best, are certainly not a whit of higher order than would be communications from living persons of fair talent and education. They are wondrously inferior to what Bacon, Shakespeare and Plato said and wrote when on earth. Nor, what is more notable, do they ever contain an idea that was not on the earth before. 
Wonderful, therefore, as such phenomena may be, granting them to be truthful, I see much that philosophy may question, nothing that is incumbent on philosophy to deny, viz. nothing supernatural. They are but ideas conveyed somehow or other. We have not yet discovered the means from one mortal brain to another. Whether, in doing so, tables walk of their own accord, or fiend-like shapes appear in a magic circle, or bodiless hands rise and remove material objects, or a thing of darkness such as presented itself to me frees our blood, still am I persuaded that these are but agencies conveyed, as by electric wires, to my own brain from the brain of another. In some constitutions there is a natural chemistry, and those may produce chemic wonders, in others a natural fluid, call it electricity, and these produce electric wonders. But they differ in this from normal science. They are alike objectless, purposeless, puerile, frivolous. They lead on to no grand results, and therefore the world does not heed, and true sages have not cultivated them. But sure I am that of all I saw or heard, a man, human as myself, was the remote originator, and I believe unconsciously to himself as to the exact effects produced for this reason. No two persons, you say, have ever told you that they experienced exactly the same thing. Well, observe, no two persons ever experience exactly the same dream. If this were an ordinary imposture, the machinery would be arranged for results that would but little vary. If it were a supernatural agency, permitted by the Almighty, it would surely be for some definite end. These phenomena belong to neither class. My persuasion is that they originate in some brain now far distant, that the brain had no distinct volition in anything that occurred, that what does occur reflects but its devious, motley, ever-shifting, half-formed thoughts. In short, that it has been but the dreams of such a brain put into action and invested with a semi-substance. That this brain is of immense power, that it can set matter into movement, that it is malignant and destructive, I believe. Some material force must have killed my dog. It might, for aught I know, have sufficed to kill myself, had I been as subjugated by terror as the dog, had my intellect or my spirit given me no countervailing resistance in my will. It killed your dog? That is fearful! Indeed, it is strange that no animal can be induced to stay in that house, not even a cat. Rats and mice are never found in it. The instincts of the brute creation detect influences deadly to their existence. Man's reason has a sense less subtle, because it has a resisting power more supreme. But enough. Do you comprehend my theory? Yes, though imperfectly. And I accept any crotchet, pardon the word, however odd, rather than embrace at once the notion of ghosts and hobgoblins we imbibed in our nurseries. Still, to my unfortunate house, the evil is the same. What on earth can I do with the house? I will tell you what I would do. I am convinced from my own internal feelings that the small unfurnished room at right angles to the door of the bedroom which I occupied forms a starting point or receptacle for the influences which haunt the house, and I strongly advise you to have the walls opened, the floor removed, nay, the whole room pulled down. I observe that it is detached from the body of the house, built over the small backyard, and could be removed without injury to the rest of the building. And you think, if I did that, you would cut off the telegraph wires? Try it. I am so persuaded that I am right that I will pay half the expense if you will allow me to direct the operations. Nay, 
I am well able to afford the cost. For the rest, allow me to write to you. About ten days afterwards, I received a letter from Mr. J, telling me that he had visited the house since I had seen him, that he had found the two letters I had described replaced in the drawer from which I had taken them, that he had read them with misgivings like my own, that he had instituted a cautious inquiry about the woman to whom I rightly conjectured they had been written. It seemed that thirty-six years ago, a year before the date of the letters, she had married against the wish of her relatives an American of very suspicious character. In fact, he was generally believed to have been a pirate. She herself was the daughter of very respectable tradespeople and had served in the capacity of a nursery governess before her marriage. She had a brother, a widower, who was considered wealthy and who had one child of about six years old. A month after the marriage, the body of this brother was found in the Thames, near London Bridge. There seemed some marks of violence about his throat, but they were not deemed sufficient to warrant the inquest in any other verdict than that of found drowned. The American and his wife took charge of the little boy, the deceased brother having, by his will, left his sister the guardian of his only child, and in the event of the child's death, the sister inherited. The child died about six months afterwards. It was supposed to have been neglected and ill-treated. The neighbours deposed to have heard it shriek at night. The surgeon who had examined it after death said that it was emaciated as if from want of nourishment and the body was covered with livid bruises. It seemed that one winter night the child had sought to escape, crept out into the backyard, tried to scale the wall, fallen back exhausted, and been found at morning on the stones in a dying state. But though there was some evidence of cruelty, there was none of murder, and the aunt and her husband had sought to palliate cruelty by alleging the exceeding stubbornness and perversity of the child who was declared to be half-witted. Be that as it may, at the orphan's death, the aunt inherited her brother's fortune. Before the first wedded year was out, the American quitted England abruptly and never returned to it. He obtained a cruising vessel, which was lost in the Atlantic two years afterwards. The widow was left in affluence, but reverses of various kinds had befallen her. A bank broke. An investment failed. She went into a small business and became insolvent. Then she entered into service, sinking lower and lower, from housekeeper down to maid of all work, never long retaining a place, though nothing peculiar against her character was ever alleged. She was considered sober, honest, and peculiarly quiet in her ways. Still, nothing prospered with her. And so she had dropped into the workhouse, from which Mr. J had taken her to be placed in charge of the very house which she had rented as mistress in the first year of her wedded life. Mr. J added that he had passed an hour alone in the unfurnished room which I had urged him to destroy, and that his impressions of dread while there were so great, though he had neither heard nor seen anything that he was eager to have the walls bared and the floors removed as I had suggested. He had engaged persons for the work and would commence any day I would name. The day was accordingly fixed. I repaired to the haunted house. We went into the blind, dreary room, took up the skirting and then the floors. Under the rafters, covered with rubbish, was found a trap door, quite large enough to admit a man, it was closely nailed down with clamps and rivets of iron. On removing these, we descended into a room below, the existence of which had never been suspected. In this room there had been a window and a flue, but they had been bricked over, evidently for many years. By the help of candles, we examined this place. It still retained some mouldering furniture, three chairs, an oak settle, a table, 
all of the fashion of about eighty years ago. There was a chest of drawers against the wall in which we found, half rotted away, old-fashioned articles of a man's dress, such as might have been worn eighty or a hundred years ago by a gentleman of some rank. Costly steel buckles and buttons, like those yet worn in court dresses. A handsome court sword, in a waistcoat which had once been rich with gold lace, but which was now blackened and foul with damp, we found five guineas, a few silver coins, and an ivory ticket, probably for some place of entertainment long since passed away. But our main discovery was in a kind of iron safe fixed to the wall, the lock of which it cost us much trouble to get picked. In this safe were three shelves and two small drawers. Ranged on the shelves were several small bottles of crystal, hermetically stopped. They contained colourless, volatile essences, of what nature I shall say no more than that they were not poisons. Phosphor and ammonia entered into some of them. There were also some very curious glass tubes, and a small pointed rod of iron, with a large lump of rock crystal, and another of amber, also a lodestone of great power. In one of the drawers we found a miniature portrait set in gold, and retaining the freshness of its colours most remarkably, considering the length of time it had probably been there. The portrait was that of a man who might be somewhat advanced in middle life, perhaps forty-seven or forty-eight, it was a most peculiar face, a most impressive face. If you could fancy some mighty serpent transformed into man, preserving in the human lineaments the old serpent type, you would have a better idea of that countenance than long descriptions can convey. The width and flatness of frontal, the tapering elegance of contour disguising the strength of the deadly jaw, the long, large, terrible eye, glittering and green as the emerald, and withal a certain ruthless calm, as if from the consciousness of an immense power. The strange thing was this. The instant I saw the miniature, I recognised a startling likeness to one of the rarest portraits in the world, the portrait of a man of a rank only below that of royalty, who, in his own day, had made a considerable noise. History says little or nothing of him, but search the correspondence of his contemporaries, and you will find reference to his wild daring, his bold profligacy, his restless spirit, his taste for the occult sciences. While still in the meridian of life, he died and was buried, so say the chronicles, in a foreign land, he died in time to escape the grasp of the law, for he was accused of crimes which would have given him to the headsman. After his death, the portraits of him, which had been numerous, for he had been a munificent encourager of art, were bought up and destroyed. It was supposed by his heirs, who might have been glad could they have raised his very name from their splendid line. He had enjoyed a vast wealth, a large portion of this was believed to have been embezzled by a favourite astrologer or soothsayer. At all events, it had unaccountably vanished at the time of his death. One portrait alone of him was supposed to have escaped the general destruction. I had seen it in the house of a collector some months before. It had made on me a wonderful impression, as it does on all who behold it, a face never to be forgotten. And there was that face in the miniature that lay within my hand. True, that in the miniature the man was a few years older than in the portrait I had seen, or than the original was, even at the time of his death. But a few years! Why, between the date in which flourished that direful noble and the date in which the miniature was evidently painted, there was an interval of more than two centuries. While I was thus gazing, silent and wondering, Mr. J said, But is it possible? 
I haven't known this man. How? Where? I cried. In India. He was high in the confidence of the Raja of... And well nigh drew him into a revolt which would have lost the Raja his dominions. The man was a Frenchman. His name de V. Clever. Bold. Lawless. We insisted on his dismissal and banishment. It must be the same man. No two faces like his. Yet this miniature seems nearly a hundred years old. Mechanically, I turned round the miniature to examine the back of it, and on the back was engraved a pentacle. In the middle of the pentacle, a ladder, and the third step of the ladder was formed by the date 1765. Examining still more minutely, I detected a spring. This, on being pressed, opened the back of the miniature as a lid. With inside the lid was engraved, Mariana to thee, be faithful in life and in death too. Here follows a name that I will not mention, but it was not unfamiliar to me. I had heard it spoken of by old men in my childhood as the name borne by a dazzling charlatan who had made a great sensation in London for a year or so and had fled the country on the charge of a double murder within his own house, that of his mistress and his rival. I said nothing of this to Mr. J, to whom, reluctantly, I resigned the miniature. We had found no difficulty in opening the first drawer within the iron safe. We found great difficulty in opening the second. It was not locked, but it resisted all efforts till we inserted in the chinks the edge of a chisel. When we had thus drawn it forth, we found a very singular apparatus in the nicest order. Upon a small thin book, or rather tablet, was placed a saucer of crystal. This saucer was filled with a clear liquid. On that liquid floated a kind of compass with a needle shifting rapidly round, but instead of the usual points of a compass were seven strange characters, not very unlike those used by astrologers to denote the planets. A very peculiar, but not strong nor displeasing, odour came from this drawer which was lined with a wood that we afterwards discovered to be hazel. Whatever the cause of this odour, it produced a material effect on the nerves. We all felt it, even the two workmen who were in the room, a creeping, tingling sensation from the tips of the fingers to the roots of the hair. Impatient to examine the tablet, I removed the saucer. As I did so, the needle of the compass went round and round with exceeding swiftness, and I felt a shock that ran through my whole frame, so that I dropped the saucer on the floor. The liquid was spilt, the saucer was broken, the compass rolled to the end of the room, and at that instant the walls shook to and fro as if a giant had swayed and rocked them. The two workmen were so frightened that they ran up the ladder by which we had descended from the trap door, but seeing that nothing more happened, they were easily induced to return. Meanwhile, I had opened the tablet. It was bound in a plain red leather with a silver clasp. It contained but one sheet of thick vellum, and on that sheet were inscribed, within a double pentacle, words in old monkish Latin, which are literally to be translated thus, On all that it can reach within these walls, sentient or inanimate, living or dead. As moves the needle, so work my will. Accursed be the house, and restless be the dwellers therein. We found no more. Mr. J burnt the tablet and its anathema. He raised to the foundations the part of the building containing the secret room with the chamber over it. He had then the courage to inhabit the house himself for a month, and a quieter 
better condition house could not be found in all London. Subsequently, he let it to advantage, and his tenant has made no complaints. But my story is not yet done. A few days after Mr. J had removed into the house, I paid him a visit. We were standing by the open window and conversing. A van containing some articles of furniture which he was moving from his former house was at the door. I had just urged on him my theory that all those phenomena regarded as supermundane had emanated from a human brain, adducing the charm, or rather curse, we had found and destroyed in support of my philosophy. Mr. J was observing in reply that even if mesmerism, or whatever analogous power it might be called, could really thus work in the absence of the operator and produce effects so extraordinary, still could those effects continue when the operator himself was dead. And if the spell had been wrought, and indeed the room walled up more than seventy years ago, the probability was that the operator had long since departed this life. Mr. J, I say, was thus answering when I caught hold of his arm and pointed to the street below. A well-dressed man had crossed from the opposite side and was accosting the carrier in charge of the van. His face, as he stood, was exactly fronting our window. It was the face of the miniature we had discovered. It was the face of the portrait of the noble three centuries ago. Good heavens! cried Mr. J. That is the face of De V, and scarcely a day older than when I saw it in the Rajah's court in my youth. Seized by the same thought, we both hastened downstairs. I was first into the street, but the man had already gone. I caught sight of him, however, not many yards in advance, and in another moment I was by his side. I had resolved to speak to him, but when I looked into his face, I felt as if it were impossible to do so. That eye, the eye of the serpent, fixed and held me spellbound. And withal, about the man's whole person, there was a dignity, an air of pride and station and superiority that would have made anyone habituated to the usages of the world hesitate long before venturing upon a liberty or impertinence. And what could I say? What was it I would ask? Thus ashamed of my first impulse, I fell a few paces back, still, however, following the stranger, undecided what else to do. Meanwhile, he turned the corner of the street. A plain carriage was in waiting, with a servant out of livery, dressed like a valet de place, at the carriage door. In another moment, he had stepped into the carriage, and it drove off. I returned to the house. Mr. J., was still at the street door. He had asked the carrier what the stranger had said to him. Merely asked whom that house now belonged to. The same evening I happened to go with a friend to a place in town called the Cosmopolitan Club, a place open to men of all countries, all opinions, all degrees. One orders one's coffee, smokes one's cigar. One is always sure to meet agreeable sometimes remarkable, persons. I had not been two minutes in the room before I beheld at a table conversing with an acquaintance of mine whom I will designate by the initial G, the man, the original of the miniature. He was now without his hat, and the likeness was yet more startling, only I observed that while he was conversing there was less severity in the countenance. There was even a smile, though a very quiet and very cold one. The dignity of mien I had acknowledged in the street was also more striking, a dignity akin to that which invests some prince of the East, conveying the idea of supreme indifference 
and habitual, indisputable, indolent, but resistless power. G soon after left the stranger, who then took up a scientific journal, which seemed to absorb his attention. I drew G aside. Who and what is that gentleman? That? Oh, a very remarkable man indeed. I met him last year amidst the caves of Petra, the scriptural Edom. He is the best oriental scholar I know. We joined company, had an adventure with robbers in which he showed a coolness that saved our lives. Afterwards, he invited me to spend a day with him in a house he had bought at Damascus, a house buried amongst almond blossoms and roses, the most beautiful thing. He had lived there for some years, quite as an oriental, in grand style. I half suspect he is a renegade, immensely rich, very odd. By the by, a great mesmerizer. I have seen him with my own eyes produce an effect on inanimate things. If you take a letter from your pocket and throw it to the other end of the room, he will order it to come to his feet, and you will see the letter wriggle itself along the floor till it has obeyed his command. Upon my honour, tis true, I have seen him affect even the weather, disperse or collect clouds, by means of a glass tube or wand. But he does not like talking of these matters to strangers. He has only just arrived in England, says he has not been here for a great many years. Let me introduce him to you. Certainly. He is English, then. What is his name? Oh, a very homely one, Richards. And what is his birth, his family? How do I know? What does it signify? No doubt some parvenu, but rich, so infernally rich. G drew me up to the stranger, and the introduction was effected. The manners of Mr. Richards were not those of an adventurous traveller. Travellers are, in general, constitutionally gifted with high animal spirits. They are talkative, eager, imperious. Mr. Richards was calm and subdued in tone, with manners which were made distant by the loftiness of punctilious courtesy. The manners of a former age. I observed that the English he spoke was not exactly of our day. I should even have said that the accent was slightly foreign. But then Mr. Richards remarked that he had been little in the habit for many years of speaking in his native tongue. The conversation fell upon the changes in the aspect of London since he had last visited our metropolis. G then glanced off to the moral changes, literary, social, political, the great men who were removed from the stage within the last twenty years, the new great men who were coming on. In all this, Mr. Richards evinced no interest. He had evidently read none of our living authors, and seemed scarcely acquainted by name with our younger statesmen. Once, and only once, he laughed. It was when G asked him whether he had any thoughts of getting into Parliament, and the laugh was inward, sarcastic, sinister, a sneer raised into a laugh. After a few minutes, G left us to talk to some other acquaintances who had just lounged into the room, and then I said quietly, I have seen a miniature of you, Mr. Richards, in the house you once inhabited, and perhaps built, if not wholly, at least in part, in street. You passed by that house this morning. Not till I had finished did I raise my eyes to his, and then his fixed my gaze so steadfastly that I could not withdraw it. Those fascinating serpent eyes. But involuntarily, and if the words that translated my thought were dragged from me, I added in a low whisper, I have been a student in the mysteries of life and nature. Of those mysteries I have known the occult professors. I have the right to speak to you thus. And I uttered a certain password. Well, said he dryly, 
I concede the right. What would you ask? To what extent human will, in certain temperaments, can extend? To what extent can thought extend? Think, and before you draw breath, you are in China. True, but my thought has no power in China. Give it expression, and it may have. You may write down a thought which, sooner or later, may alter the whole condition of China. What is a law but a thought? Therefore thought is infinite. Therefore thought has power. Not in proportion to its value. A bad thought may make a bad law as potent as a good thought can make a good one. Yes, what you say confirms my own theory. Through invisible currents, one human brain may transmit its ideas to other human brains with the same rapidity as a thought promulgated by visible means. And as thought is imperishable, as it leaves its stamp behind it on the natural world, even when the thinker has passed out of this world, so the thought of the living may have power to rouse up and revive the thoughts of the dead, such as those thoughts were in life, though the thought of the living cannot reach the thoughts which the dead now may entertain. Is it not so? I decline to answer if, in my judgment, thought has the limit you would fix to it. But proceed. You have a special question you wish to put. Intense malignity in an intense will, engendered in a peculiar temperament and aided by natural means within the reach of science, may produce effects like those ascribed of old to evil magic. It might thus haunt the walls of a human habitation with spectral revivals of all guilty thoughts and guilty deeds once conceived and done within those walls. All, in short, with which the evil will claims rapport and affinity, imperfect, incoherent, fragmentary snatches at the old dramas acted therein years ago. Thoughts thus crossing each other, haphazard, as in the nightmare of a vision, growing up into phantom sights and sounds, and all serving to create horror, not because those sights and sounds are really visitations from a world without, but that they are ghastly, monstrous renewals of what have been in this world itself, set into malignant play, by a malignant mortal. And it is through the material agency of that human brain that these things would acquire even a human power, would strike as with the shock of electricity, and might kill, if the thought of the person assailed did not rise superior to the dignity of the original assailer, might kill the most powerful animal, if unnerved by fear, but not injure the feeblest man if, while his flesh crept, his mind stood out fearless. Thus, when in old stories we read of a magician rent to pieces by the fiends he evoked, or still more, in eastern legends that one magician succeeds by arts in destroying another, there may be so far truth that a material being has clothed from its own evil propensities certain elements and fluids usually quiescent or harmless, with awful shape and terrific force, just as the lightning that had lain hidden and innocent in the cloud becomes by natural law suddenly visible, takes a distinct shape to the eye, and can strike destruction on the object to which it is attracted. You are not without glimpses of a very mighty secret, said Mr. Richards, composedly. According to your view, could a mortal obtain the power you speak of, he would necessarily be a malignant and evil being. If the power were exercised as I have said, most malignant 
and most evil, though I believe in the ancient traditions that he could not injure the good. His will could only injure those with whom it has established an affinity or over whom it forces unresisted sway. I will now imagine an example that may be within the laws of nature, yet seem wild as the fables of a bewildered monk. You will remember that Albertus Magnus, after describing minutely the process by which spirits may be invoked and commanded, adds emphatically that the process will instruct and avail only to the few that a man must be born a magician, that is, born with a peculiar physical temperament, as a man is born a poet. Rarely are men in whose constitution lurks this occult power of the highest order of intellect. Usually, in the intellect there is some twist, perversity, or disease. But on the other hand, they must possess, to an astonishing degree, the faculty to concentrate thought on a single object, the energic faculty that we call will. Therefore, though their intellect be not sound, it is exceedingly forcible for the attainment of what it desires. I will imagine such a person, preeminently gifted with this constitution and its concomitant forces, I will place him in the loftier grades of society. I will suppose his desires emphatically those of the sensualist. He has, therefore, a strong love of life. He is an absolute egotist. His will is concentrated in himself. He has fierce passions. He knows no enduring, no holy affections, but he can covet eagerly what for the moment he desires. He can hate implacably what opposes itself to his objects. He can commit fearful crimes, yet feel small remorse. He resorts rather to curses upon others than to penitence for his misdeeds. Circumstances to which his constitution guides him lead him to a rare knowledge of the natural secrets which may serve his egotism. He is a close observer where his passions encourage observation. He is a minute calculator, not from love of truth, but where love of self sharpens his faculties. Therefore, he can be a man of science. I suppose such a being, having by experience learned the power of his arts over others, trying what may be the power of will over his own frame, and studying all that in natural philosophy may increase that power. He loves life. He dreads death. He wills to live on. He cannot restore himself to youth. He cannot entirely stay the progress of death. He cannot make himself immortal in the flesh and blood. But he may arrest for a time so prolonged as to appear incredible if I said it, that hardening of the parts which constitutes old age. A year may age him no more than an hour ages another, his intense will, scientifically trained into system, operates, in short, over the wear and tear of his own frame. He lives on. That he may not seem a portent or a miracle, he dies from time to time, seemingly to certain persons. Having schemed the transfer of a wealth that suffices to his wants, he disappears from one corner of the world and contrives that his obsequies shall be celebrated. He reappears in another corner of the world, where he resides undetected, and does not revisit the scenes of his former career till all who could remember his features are no more. He would be profoundly miserable if he had affections. He has none but for himself. No good man would accept his longevity, and to no men good or bad, would he, or could he, communicate its true secret? Such a man might exist, such a man as I have described, I see now before me, Duke of, in the court of, dividing time between lust and brawl, alchemists and wizards, again in the last century, charlatan and criminal, with name less noble, domiciled in the house at which you gazed today, and flying from the law you had outraged, none knew whither. 
traveller once more revisiting London with the same earthly passions which filled your heart when races now no more walked through yonder streets. Outlaw from the school of all the nobler and diviner mystics, execrable image of life in death and death in life, I warn you back from the cities and homes of healthful men, back to the ruins of departed empires, back to the deserts of nature unredeemed. There answered me a whisper, so musical, so potently musical, that it seemed to enter into my whole being and subdue me despite myself. Thus it said, I have sought one like you for the last hundred years. Now I have found you. We part not till I know what I desire. The vision that sees through the past and cleaves through the veil of the future is in you at this hour, never before, never to come again. The vision of no puling fantastic girl, of no sick-bed somnambule, but of a strong man with a vigorous brain. Soar and look forth! As he spoke, I felt as if I rose out of myself upon eagle wings. All the weight seemed gone from air. Roofless the room, roofless the dome of space. I was not in the body. Where, I knew not, but aloft, over time, over earth. Again I heard the melodious whisper, You say right. I have mastered great secrets by the power of will. True. By will and by science, I can retard the process of years. But death comes not by age alone. Can I frustrate the accidents which bring death upon the young? No, every accident is a providence. Before a providence snaps every human will. Shall I die at last? Ages and ages hence, by the slow, though inevitable, growth of time, or by the cause that I call accident. By a cause you call accident. Is not the end still remote? asked the whisper, with a slight tremor. Regarded as my life regards time, it is still remote. And shall I, before then, Mix with the world of men as I did, ere I learned these secrets. Resume eager interest in their strife and their trouble. Battle with ambition, and use the power of the sage to win the power that belongs to kings. You will yet play a part on the earth that will fill earth with commotion and amaze. For wondrous designs have you, a wonder yourself, been permitted to live on through the centuries. All the secrets you have stored will then have their uses. All that now makes you a stranger amidst the generations will contribute then to make you their lord. As the trees and the straws are drawn into a whirlpool, as they spin round, are sucked to the deep, and again tossed aloft by the eddies, so shall races and thrones be plucked into the charm of your vortex. Awful destroyer! But in destroying, made against your own will, a constructor. And that date, too, is far off. Far off. When it comes, think your end in this world is at hand. How and what is the end? Look east, west, south and north. In the north, where you never yet trod towards the point whence your instincts have warned you, there a spectre will seize you. Tis death. I see a ship. It is haunted. Tis chased. It sails on. Baffled navies sail after that ship. It enters a region of ice. It passes a sky red with meteors. Two moons stand on high over ice reefs. I see the ship locked between white defiles. They are ice rocks. I see the dead strew the decks, stark and livid, green mould on their limbs. 
all are dead, but one man. It is you. But years, though so slowly they come, have then scathed you. There is the coming of age on your brow, and the will is relaxed in the cells of the brain. Still, that will, though enfeebled, exceeds all that man knew before you. Through the will you live on, gnawed with famine, and nature no longer obeys you in that death-spreading region. The sky is a sky of iron, and the air has iron clamps, and the ice rocks wedge in the ship. Hark, how it cracks and groans. Ice will embed it as amber embeds a straw. And a man has gone forth, living yet, from the ship, and it's dead. And he has clambered up the spikes of an iceberg, and the two moons gaze down upon his form. That man is yourself, and terror is on you. Terror! And terror has swallowed your will. And I see, swarming up the steep ice rock, grey, grisly things. The bears of the north have scented their quarry. They come near you and nearer, shambling and rolling their bulk. And in that day, every moment shall seem to you longer than the centuries through which you have passed. And heed this. After life, moments continued make the bliss or the hell of eternity. Hush, said the whisper, but the day, you assure me, is far off, very far. I go back to the almond and rose of Damascus. Sleep. The room swam before my eyes. I became insensible. When I recovered, I found G holding my hand and smiling. He said, You who have always declared yourself proof against mesmerism have succumbed at last to my friend Richards. Where is Mr. Richards? Gone, when you passed into a trance, saying quietly to me, Your friend will not wake for an hour. I asked, as collectedly as I could, where Mr. Richards lodged. At the Trafalgar Hotel. Give me your arm, said I to G. Let us call on him. I have something to say. When we arrived at the hotel, we were told that Mr. Richards had returned twenty minutes before, paid his bill, left directions with his servant, a Greek, to pack his effects and proceed to Malta by the steamer that should leave Southampton the next day. Mr. Richards had merely said of his own movements that he had visits to pay in the neighbourhood of London and it was uncertain whether he should be able to reach Southampton in time for that steamer. If not, he should follow in the next one. The waiter asked me my name. On my informing him, he gave me a note that Mr. Richards had left for me, in case I called. The note was as follows. I wished you to utter what was in your mind. You obeyed. I have, therefore, established power over you. For three months from this day, you can communicate to no living man what has passed between us. You cannot even show this note to the friend by your side. During three months, silence complete as to me and mine. Do you doubt my power to lay on you this command? Try to disobey me. At the end of the third month, the spell is raised. For the rest, I spare you. I shall visit your grave a year and a day after it has received you. So ends this strange story which I ask no one to believe. I write it down exactly three months after I received the above note. I could not write it before, nor could I show to G, 
in spite of his urgent request, the note which I read under the gas lamp by his side. End of The House and the Brain Extended Version by Edward Bulwer-Lytton Recording by Rafe Ball